Welcome to JW Podcast, where my mum can't shut up about the uh, watchtower. <laughs> Thank you, son. Hello and welcome to JW Podcast. I've got my partner in crime with me again, Lara. Hey, Lara, how are you? Hello. Hello. I heard you've um, climbed a mountain since we last spoke. I have, and I've heard you've uh, joined a gym, but I, I hear I hear you might be in a bit of pain and to make you feel a bit better. I could hardly walk for five days after I cl- climbed Mount Kosciuszko, and, and the reason why was not the first eight hours but the ninth hour was coming downhill down big stairs and the impact of coming downhill just killed me yeah what are you loving the most in the gym oh get knotted i'm not loving it at all lara it's horrible however yeah it does make me feel a little bit better that you were in so much pain that you cried but the eight hours and yeah. the nine hours bit makes me feel a bit inadequate. I'm loving the bit at the end where you're counting down the last minute on the machine. Oh, and I'll tell you what I did. This was epic. So the first time I went, you put a key code into the door and I was trying to put a delivery code in <laughs> for a package that I'd been sent instead yeah. of a gym code. And then when I got in there, there's a, a cross-trainer machine and it, if you stop, it says, pedal faster on the on the screen and so I got my phone out ah. and I took a comedy photo of it but it took me about five attempts because it only it only clicks up for about three seconds so I had to stop and start about seven times to get the comedy photo to put on Facebook well can you send that to me and if you send that to me I'll send you a photo of my knee because after I got back from climbing we went for a gentle walk down to the pub and I fell over so I had one dodgy foot and one bunged up knee oh, no. so we can swap photos don't worry I'm, I'm healed now <laughs> it's a relief to be sitting down don't you think oh, well I can honestly say that there's no way I will be exercising so much that I couldn't get to the pub just to reassure everybody <laughs> but I'm pleased with ourselves Louise because we had New Year's resolutions, right, that we started. This is because of our New Year's resolutions that we made. And um, that's I would, would like to introduce you to someone in a minute. Um, but firstly, how we came across meeting each other was that, um, you know, you and I were speaking with Alexandra James and we were talking about what our New, New Year's resolutions might be. And one of mine was, well, Potentially eight of mine were about letter writing and um, about a campaign about letter writing this year. And now all of a sudden we're in 2018. So let me introduce to you Sam Fade and then I'll go back to my letter writing campaign. But Sam Fade, I found or she found me in our group in Australia and New Zealand. So hi, Sam. Hi, guys. Nice, nice to have you with us. And I, uh, I guess first notice that you're a newbie because we have our admin Eddie and Eddie always introduces someone with a song and everybody always looks to see do they know someone who's just arrived so I notice all people that join the group 
And then I noticed that you were interested in being an activist or an advocate and we got to talking there. Um, and you first did an article, The Rights of the Child, which I'm going to ask you to read later on. But I want to tell you, Sam, um, why your article was so important to me. And it's because we did want to have this letter writing campaign this year. And there were eight reasons uh, that I said earlier um, why I think your writing is going to be really helpful. And that is, I want to write a complaint, letter of complaint to the tax department, which I did last year, or the IRS if you're in America. What do you call it there, Louise? Um, Inland Revenue. Her, Her Majesty's Inland Revenue, because we have the Queen. Yes, we share the same one for now. For now. <laughs> so, but I think people need to know what's happening with their money. And then the second reason, the yeah. second reason is um, people can make a police statement. You know, it's not just about child abuse; it's about all abuses, and not ch- not just child sexual abuse, but lots of abuses that happen when you're a child and an adult. So, police statements is the second reason. Three to use in complaints to the Human Rights Commission, and I don't think enough is happening with the Human Rights Commission being interested in our stories. Totally Fourth agree. Reason, Thank you. The um and I and I actually am using your article to submit, which I really appreciate, Sam. Uh, fourthly is the Charity Commission, which I've already made a complaint and have written to them twice again to submit new information, such as what Bill Hahn gave gave to us in his um financial analysis that he spoke about last year. Also just submissions to ministers of parliament, so politicians. And media, so general, you know, we have here in Australia The Age, The Herald Sun, uh, Guardian particularly takes an interest in our stories. Recently, the two-witness rule was on a TV show that I mentioned last time, which you can look up, called The Drum. And another uh, two other places that you can write to, um, complaints to, that is, uh, child safety departments, which I think your article, I can't wait for you to read it out, Sam, um, you know, th- this would be a highlight article to send to child safety departments in all countries because what you've written can be generically applied across many countries. And then lastly, uh, providing it to investigative journalists who are specifically interested um, in our plight. So they're the reasons why I really wanted to have Sam on. And so, Sam, I'd like to get you to speak now because I've had enough of the <laughs> time on the podcast already. So let's let's talk to you. So, hello, Sam. How are you? I'm really good, thanks, Louise. Before I do start with your interview, I just need to tell everyone, I will put those eight places that people can write letters to as a link on this podcast at the end, because I think that's a great idea. So, tell us about your um, tell us about your journey, Sam, who you are. Okay, so, secularly, in my secular career. Yes, yeah, sorry, start from the beginning, yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. Well, I'm a multi-award winning education specialist from Australia and I specialise in under school age children and children with additional needs. And I've been in my field for about 10 years now. That's really interesting because I just started a year ago working with um, children with additional needs. Um, My area of responsibility is from five to 19 year olds, but my class I've been given is um, a little class of reception children well it's kind of key stage one so four five six and seven year olds and it's right out of my comfort zone because I'm a secondary maths teacher by trade so I've spent the last year learning everything 
that probably that you're about to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's been tough, I can tell you. So, Sam, were you born in as a Jehovah's Witness? I wasn't born in, but I basically always say, well, near enough is good enough. So my parents, one of those rare field converts, but I was very, very young. So I think it was about four when my parents started studying. You won't remember before then. then. Do you have one of those memories of Christmas? I do. I remember one Christmas and I remember one birthday before we all stopped. Oh, man, that's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> not, great. not when you're expecting toys. I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this is crap. <laughs> what the hell? Where's Christmas gone? <laughs> I remember even asking, are we going to Nan and Pops? Because we'd always go to my Nan and Pops for Christmas. Are we going to Nan and Pops? And they'd be like, no, we don't do that anymore. Right. That's that's not confusing at all. So No, not at all. <laughs> Talk to me about your journey um, through and out of Jehovah's Witnesses then and what led you to your current career. Well, as Lara already said, I'm actually fairly new to waking up. I've only been, I guess you could call it, awake for about 12 months now. Before that, I was, I don't know what you call it, fringing. <laughs> I was a fringe dweller. That sounds like some kind of exciting deviant lifestyle. I'm, that's going to be a new thing now. We're going to um, trademark that for the podcast, Fringing. I remember it being said one time at a meeting that, you know, you can't sit on the fence, so you can't be a fringe dweller. So I guess we could definitely say the last five years I've been a fringe dweller. Before that, obviously, I grew up in the organisation. Um, I was baptised in the mid-90s and then I decided that, well, with a little prompting from the, the parents, that I was going to be a pioneer. So I've been an auxiliary pioneer and I've been a regular pioneer. I've gone to pioneer school. Wow. And then I stopped pioneering. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard work, isn't it? Yes, yes. It was a very abrupt stopping to pioneering also. So what happened? What made you stop? I mean, what made you leave? I got reproved. Oh, you are an exciting person, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. I got reproved. I had a worldly boyfriend. I got disfellowshipped three months after I got reproved. I married my worldly boyfriend and then I was reinstated within a year. So instead of learning my lesson, I went back for more. (laughs) Okay. Sam, can I just interrupt for a second to say I want to wish him a happy birthday. I won't say his name and we won't (laughs) say today's date, but we would like to thank him for letting you spend time with us on his birthday. And I've read something about him and he's a special man. So hello from (laughs) us. I feel terrible. You've just reminded me that I need to feel guilty. We've taken Sam out of her husband's birthday today. (laughs) to do this god do i feel bad anyway crack on all right he's all right he's watching netflix he's happy as larry so yeah probably the last fight well how did you get out wait stop you went back in how did you get out it's very much been well um after i went back in i probably tried for about 10 years to be to be good but there was just i had so many issues with so many things and i ended up putting my career first I ended up putting my family first my children first and it sort of left the organization 
very poor country cousin. So I sort of faded out a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, less meetings, less meetings. And probably the last five years, I haven't done very much at all. So very much spasmodic for the last five years because I've just had so many issues with what's been going on. That's really interesting. So you're not disfellowshipped? No. Yeah, good for you. Clever girl. I really like that, that you put your family and your career first, like like a normal human being should do. And it's funny, isn't it, that that is why the cult forces people to put everything on a back burner because they know that there's no room for your family, life and your job and them. It's mutually exclusive. So if it's if it's not them, it's you. But that's great that you did that. I think it was... Sorry, I think it was definitely the fact that I wasn't married to a witness that made all the difference. Um, He was always very um, focused on putting our family first and getting stability for our family. And obviously I have two children, so it was always very focused on that sort of rather than and, and keeping me on track and sort of not thinking about going back to you know regular pioneering or things like that and he 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 studied three times but he made it very clear after probably the third time that he was definitely an atheist and that he would not be joining (laughs) and there was only so far he could go taking one for the team that's brilliant now there must have been some conflict in your mind then with your child safeguarding hat on that you had two children and presumably you were trying to take them to meetings and do all the stuff. But at the same time, you must have been aware that it's quite abusive to children in terms of the nurture and development. How did you pull that together? Or is that what made you leave? No, it wasn't actually. It was more the lack of love and the Royal Commission and just a plethora of things all little things adding up and adding up till it was just an avalanche for me, basically. But interestingly enough, it wasn't my secular job and then relating it to the organisation that made me twig that of the massive mm. problems. It, um, it was actually Lara that focused my attention on on this because we were talking at the start of the year and I was saying to her in a message or, or on a on a Facebook post that I wanted to do more but I really was at a loss of what I could bring to the table like there's so many that are focusing on sexual abuse there are so many that are focusing on other things and I'm like well what am I gonna do like I, I'd like to do more but I've got no idea where to start and then Lara you asked me the question what are you good at and what are you passionate about and I thought, those are really good questions. So I sat down and I thought about it and then it just hit me like a lightning bolt, basically. I'm really good at my job and I'm really good at child advocacy and I'm really good at my area of education speciality. So why am I not, Why I don't know why I didn't even twig to start with, but I can use that and relate it to all the problems that I see within the organisation. And I, I am so glad you asked. So you suddenly remembered that you were a multi-award winning educational specialist and you thought, oh, hey, <laughs> I have something I'm really good at. <laughs> oh, look at all these awards. <laughs> I've suddenly remembered. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit 
like that. I sort of sat down going, well, duh. That's really interesting because I do like to toot Lara's trumpet, but she is a bit of a a kind of, um, she generates action in other people. She's like a little hub of energy. So she gets other people doing lots of things. So that's really interesting that she was the person that triggered you to do what you do because what you do now is uh, fantastically important. It's probably one of, apart from the, well, and the, the abuse issue is about children, it is probably one of the most burning and, and worrying issues about the cults. Definitely, definitely. So what? tell us what you started doing. Well, after it sort of hit me like a lightning bolt thinking, well, duh, why didn't you think of this earlier? Um, I noticed that obviously one of my major issues was the Royal Commission and the treatment of children, but not so much focusing on the sexual abuse side of things, but the fact that there's a systemic failure on the part of the organisation to to look after children that are supposed to be in their care, to advocate for those children, and that there is a real breakdown on a physical, mental and emotional level where these that's not been addressed and that I really wasn't happy with that. I'm not happy with the way they're doing any of it. Um, the, the new child protection policy that they've that they've brought out is basically I could use it as toilet paper. It's worthless. So I thought, you know what, someone needs to focus on bringing to light the fact that there is major breaches in what the organisation does in the protection, the handling, the day-to-day looking after of children within its organisation, and that is an insanely damaging thing. And child advocacy, if we don't step up as adults and those in positions of, you know, of knowledge to be able to advocate for the rights of these children, then no one is going to. Exactly, because that's the role of an adult, isn't it? That is that is why we are adults, to protect and, and care give to children. And it's fundamental to the relationship. And when you go through the vast amounts of safeguarding training that I have done and that obviously you will have done in when you're in any kind of job that cares for children, it's the, the main stay of my job is knowing about child protection and child safeguarding. And that's not all about, as you say, child abuse. That's about treating the child with dignity. It's about putting the child at the centre of all your decisions and all your actions and all the way you phrase things even to children. It's definitely probably and people probably don't realize actually what a massive focus there is in education now certainly in the UK the the Char- the children act in the UK is a, is an immensely important piece of legislation for us because it's the first piece of legislation that puts the child at the center of the legal framework not the adults making the decision we have similar we have similar legislation in Australia and similar um, learning programs, scaffolding and outcomes where that's concerned. So, yeah, definitely what you're saying, Louise, is, is something that, you know, although a lot of people are dealing with the sexual abuse side of things at the moment, it's it's not just the sexual abuse side that is an issue. There is an issue of best practice and nobody is advocating for the best practice, the best interests of children. And so there is significant damage being done within the organisation to children. 
Yeah, I'd agree. Now, that's an interesting concept because when Watchtower go to court or when they um, like go to the Royal Commission or anything like that, they always make the argument that they are um, doing everything legally. They're, they're satisfying the legal standards and, and it's always the absolute minimum that they can get away with, isn't it? If they don't have to report, they won't report. They go, well, hey, we're satisfying the legal minimum, you know, the legal standards. And I think, yeah, the very least that you can get away with. Best practice is talking about the very best that has been empirically shown to work um, across the board, irrespective of whether it's enshrined in law or not and this movement from you know satisfying the minimum legal standard to move into best practice is something that schools and, and other safeguarding bodies strive for except the witnesses except the witnesses and that's a very very good point because you've got all these secular organizations that are, are moving towards best practice they were moving to advocacy they're moving they're moving towards a more holistic form of, you know, the way we treat children in general nowadays. And this is really important. And also, you know, advocating for children's rights. And yet the Watchtower organization, it would, it will do whatever it can to get out of it. it. It's not helping children at all. In fact, it's putting its head in the sand and pretending that it doesn't exist and just, you know, oh, as you said, Louise, if, if it's not mandated by a law, they won't do it. Yeah. So do you have any specific areas of concern? Many, <laughs> many, many, many. Um, so probably my next, like I've obviously written the two articles already, the rights of the child and then obviously about the, um, the brain development. Um, next off, I would really like to tackle um, inappropriate content in the organisation <laughs> because that is a big problem. And a lot of parents and a lot of people just don't understand that a lot of the content that comes out of the Watchtower organisation is not child-appropriate, it is not child-friendly, and it is detrimental to children. So that will be the next one that I really focus on in, in regards to content. Obviously, there are so many ways that the organisation is not looking after children. Like, it's on a mental, physical and emotional level, it just fails across the board. It might be a really good time, Sam, if you'd like to read out your um, article, The Rights of a Child, because that systemically explains where the failings are against, the well, the actual rights of a child. So it might yep. be a really pertinent time to read that out and then we can ask you more questions about that. Is that okay? Yep, that's no worries, Laura. I'll leave out the introduction that I put on it and I'll just start from the meat of it. So this article, okay, cool. this article today is focusing on the rights of a child and how the Jehovah's Witness organisation breaches those rights repeatedly. The United Nations has a document that most countries have ratified that outlines the rights that every child has. Ratifying this document means that the countries that have done so are held by the conventions outlined within the document. This was brought to ordinance on the 20th of November 1989 and then brought into force on the 2nd of September 1990. No religious organisation, especially not one that holds charity or tax exemption status in most countries, should be breaching those rights. 
Yet the Jehovah's Witness organisation does that, and not just on one count, but in numerous and duplicated areas. So the following, I'm going to explain why and how the organisation breaches the basic human rights of its own congregants. It should also be noted that the Jehovah's Witness organisation was an NGO member of the United Nations for approximately 10 years from 1991 till October 2001. So this time frame clearly coincides as being within the time frame that the UN Convention's Convention of the Rights of a Child was enforced and ratified by nations. So having said that, as an NGO member, they should have been following this convention and not breaching it. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. How do we how does the organization repeatedly breach the rights of a child? Article 1 states that every child under the age of 18 has the rights contained therein. The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society does not recognize this. They say that their authority is the Bible and thereby stripping away the rights of minor congregate children and use the Bible as their authority over minors. Article 2. Now, this is a big breach. This article clearly states that a child should not be discriminated against based on their expressed opinions. Yet, if a child expresses an opinion that they do not want to be part of the religion of their parents, they can face extreme consequences. These consequences can range from expulsion from the family home, withdrawing of financial support, banishment, segregation from the family, withdrawing of love, just to name a few things. These consequences are fully supported from within the culture of the organisation in an effort to force the child to conform his or her beliefs. Another breach in this is that children should be shielded from discrimination based on parental status. We all know that during judicial hearings of minors, there is discrepancy in findings and rulings between each different congregations and also for children whose fathers are elders or ministerial servants. This creates an unfair discrepancy in the judicial system of the internal judicial committees when wrongdoing is brought before elders. Article 3 states the summation that the best interest of a child should be paramount. This is another breach of this law. Jehovah's Witness parents and the church at large do not do things that are in the best interest of a child, whether this be forced meeting attendance when the child doesn't want to go, forced to go out preaching, etc. The big issue they breach in this article contains to the protection of children's health. Children are indoctrinated to abstain from blood even if it kills them and are taught that blood transfusions are tantamount to someone raping your body. This doctrine of the church is steadfastly enforced and children have died as a result of the church's doctrine on allowing a child to die rather than accept blood. This is not in the best interest of a child's medical well-being. Article 6 states that every child has the right to life. It states parties shall ensure to the maximum extent possible the survival of a child. Again, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society organisation fails this article with its blood policy and strict adherence to said policy. The survival of the child is not tantamount here. What they feel is tantamount is their adherence to an old law of not eating blood and they allow children to die as a result. This is not putting the child's right to live at the forefront. Article 8. A child should not be deprived of their identity. This is fine in the WBTS as long as your identity aligns with their teaching. If you are LGBTQI, then they refuse to acknowledge your identity and you are cast out or ostracised or your identity is tried to be reprogrammed. Article 12. A child is free to express their views. This only applies in the WBTS if your views align with the teachings of the organisation. 
If they differ in any way, ostracism, judicial hearings, and many other horrible things can occur to a child that is baptised in the religion. Article 13 states that a child should have the freedom to seek information. The Watchtower has strict dislike of higher education. This is pushed in publications from the pulpit to congregants, dissuading them from seeking any higher learning other than what is found in the Bible. Article 14 and 15, the right to choose your own religion and beliefs. One of the most massive breaches of this convention is found in these articles. Children of members of the Jehovah's Witness faith or their minor children are not free to choose a faith other than what of that of their parents, and there are severe repercussions ensue if a minor child that is baptised chooses that the religion is no longer for them. They face the loss of family members, the shunning from said family. They also, as soon as legally 18, face the prospect of expulsion from the family home if they go against the beliefs or choose to leave the religion. This interference with their rights has gone as far as to prompt some minors to commit suicide. Article 19 states that each child has the right to child protection from child abuse. This clearly doesn't happen within the Watchtower Society. As we can see from the two-witness rule and the level of pedophilia accusations and reports coming out, this organisation fails repeatedly under this article to protect its minor congregant members from sexual abuse. Under this charter, the organisation also fails the child to protect the child's mental health needs with appropriate content and fear-mongering of their doomsday predictions, ensuring that the child lives in a constant state of fear of the end of the world. Article 28 and 29, again, the Watchtower fails children in this area. This article outlines that education should be promoted, encouraged and facilitated for the child. Yet its own policies and literature clearly defy this article repeatedly, teaching parents that higher education is a trap of Satan the devil that leads you away from God. Article 29, it says that the children's abilities and talents should be fostered and encouraged. The Watchtower again repeatedly goes against this, not allowing extracurricular things, even going as far as to making videos, teaching parents that their children shouldn't want to get music tuition or go to higher learning facilities to get their special talents fostered. Article 31, while the Watchtower Bible Tax Society would argue that this is not a stretch, it is. Children have the right to rest and play. With teaching, preaching, meeting attendance, study and other demands on a minor child, the leisure time is greatly reduced, impinging on a happy childhood. Article 34, the right to be free from sexual abuse. Again, for all the false platitudes and statements served up by the organisation, the two-witness rule clearly does not protect the rights of a child. It shields perpetrators and fosters an environment where sexual abuse can flourish unchecked. This is a fact, and the sheer volume of cases, legal suits and victims coming to light is adequate proof that they severely breach the rights of a child on all accounts by this policy and strict adherence to it. Jehovah's Witnesses' teachings do not have the best interests of a child at heart. They are rigid in their doctrine, strictly, strictly adhering to it without any room for wavering. As you can see from all the above breaches, children's rights are not something that the church considers paramount or worthy of changing. They are movable on their stance to the detriment of children worldwide. That is just as awesome as the first time I read it, Sam. I'm so <laughs> proud of you and I'm feeling just so lucky that we've had you write that because I've just counted 14 
of the UN Convention, the the rights of the child that were breached. Yeah. And what, why I'm so um, thrilled, and I thank you so much for that, is that people can read it, but they can also listen to your voice and share that. What came across for me when I was a child was not so much child sexual abuse, but the emotional abuse. And you've encapsulated it there with 14 reasons. So thank you. So I'd like to pick up on a couple of those themes. One of them is what you were speaking about earlier, inappropriate content, which you're going to look at next. Yeah. So I went, I went on um, a training course for primary school children teaching relationship and sexual education. So in England now it's called RSE because the relationship part is more important than the sexual education. And I know... Um, Religious people have traditionally said we don't want them to learn sexual education because it's taught devoid of context. It's just taught like, how do you have sex? And that's really not true. The whole movement in the UK is about putting it within the context of respectful and healthy relationships. So at primary school, children learn things like naming body parts, proper names for body parts. They learn about private and public body parts. They learn how to say no people so that's part of the curriculum that we teach them they learn about respectful relationships what it's like to be a good friend so like you know little children will just learn what good friendship looks like and then as they get older that'll turn into what a good um, sexual relationship or what a good boyfriend girlfriend looks like so we're trying to um, make children aware that abuse is wrong within relationships so relationship and sexual education and I did a whole day's training on this and so one of the things they said was, you know, when you want to ask um, a class, when you want to answer classes' questions, have a box and get them up to write any questions that they have about SRE and put it in the box. And then you can you can review the questions first and you can see which ones are appropriate for the whole class. But there'll always be some that are sexually inappropriate in advance of the children's age that you're teaching and they said you know what do you do with those questions because if you ignore them that child still wants an answer to that question and they'll go and ask you know an older child if you don't answer it as a teacher so what they said was you say to it you, you answer the ones that you can answer that are age appropriate and then you say if you haven't had your question answered come and see me privately and I'll answer it for you so I said to the whole group if you, if any of you teach Jehovah's Witness children, what you'll find is that they may have very sexually inappropriate language and knowledge because they're, they're given an adult diet at the, at the churches, but they won't understand any of it. So where you might be thinking that the, you know, like if, if a, child, a 10 year old has asked a question about anal sex, for instance, you might assume as an educator that they've maybe been raped or exposed to inappropriate videos or that that is a topic of the school you might think this child is really over sexualized and i said for jehovah's witnesses it is both that the language is over sexualized and the concepts are but they're kept incredibly innocent so they'll probably have no idea what they're asking or talking about so i said be aware that for some children that you teach they might be simultaneously kept too innocent and over sexualized and i just think that whole inappropriate content is a massive concern to me yep me, me also i think that it's you know it's not what's in the best interest of children to be to be listening to or seeing some of the things that the organization put out and it it really does breach 
the rights of children to have a childhood. And it's not just the sexual content. I kind of focused on that because that was part of my training. But actually, the imagery in all of the magazines and books, all that destruction imagery, and people post them on Facebook, you know, the pictures of people screaming and running away from burning buildings and firebombs coming down. That is their kind of bread and butter imagery, isn't it? It is. And, and that goes on to... After this article on the rights of a child, I started to think, okay, so what else is, how do I expand on this? And that's how I came up with the next article that I wrote because I, when I, before I'd even woken up, I was watching a, a TED talk by Nadine Burke Harris on ACE scores. And I was listening and I was nodding the whole time she was speaking and I was like yep that's me yep that's me yep that's me and I thought okay if that's me as soon as I woke up to the fact that this is all just a big sham I thought I remembered that TED talk and I thought if this is the way I have been dealt with you know perhaps everybody else's ACE scores is really high too and so that's how I ended up going to the next article and looking at brain development and how it the Watchtower Society really damages the brain development of children through their content, basically. It's, it's you know, it was the motivations for writing it because, you know, people are very hard on themselves. They, they don't understand why they've made the decisions that they've done to stay in the Watchtower. They don't understand why they've picked the path that they've picked. But when you are exposed to adversity as a child that exposure to adversity the stress on your developing brain and also the lack of critical thinking these really really change and damage a child and and the way that child then grows up perceives the world their thought processes their decisions their everyday life is impacted and impinged by what they've been exposed to Sam can I ask two questions Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, when you were reading out your first article, The Rights of a Child, you um, said the acronym um, WBTS. And I just wanted to say for the UK, they might be thinking of the acronym IBSA. It's equivalent. It's the International uh, Bible Students Association. Is it, Louise? What does it actually stand for? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is the other one they use, isn't it? And then... Yeah, and so my question was with ACE scores, so this is in your second paper called How Jehovah's Witness Teachings Damage Brain Development in Children, and you mentioned the ACE scores. What is an ACE score? Do you know what it stands for, A-C-E? It it stands for Adverse Childhood Exposure. Uh Uh-huh, and how do you get that score? Like, you know, how have you got access to it? Is it... Something that's available in the statistics or? So if you look at, if you Google Nadine Burke Harris or even my article on brain development in Jehovah's Witness children, there's links in there where you can personally take the ACE, ACE score test and find out what your ACE score is. So it basically goes on things like what you've been exposed to and there, and it, out, it gives you an, a score out of 10 of what yes. your personal ACE score is like for me it's six out of ten which is quite high yes most Jehovah's Witness children will have an ACE score at least of two 
Okay, so, so when you say most Jehovah's Witness children, do, do you mean there are statistics out that have shown what they have scored? Or like, do you generally no. get scored as a child? No. No, you don't. And it's not a it's not a test that is you know generally scored through schools or childcare facilities or anything like that. It's it's a test that that adults or children could take to to show what they've been exposed to and how that exposure could lead to adversity in their adult life, basically. It shows that, you know, so having a higher ACE score tests, it can it affects brain development, it can affect your hormone system, it can affect the immune system, it can even affect your DNA, it, it can lead to higher heart disease, cancer, things like this. So the more adversity that you're exposed to as a child, the more your chances of basically bad health outcomes in the future happening. Okay. Yeah, so just to be clear, just for clarity for everyone listening, so it's not that we've taken some statistic and said most Jehovah's Witness children are this score. What we're saying is as a result of, you know, those very serious breaches against the rights of a child, that that would be most likely to have this result. Definitely. So because of the breaches on the rights of children within the organisation, children will always have emotional abuse and emotional neglect because Mm. they have been subjected to those breaches of human rights. Whether their parents are aware of it or not or whether their parents are deliberately trying to do it or not, that's not the point. The fact is that because they are subjected to those breaches of human rights, they will then have fall under that form of emotional or emotional abuse or emotional neglect. So I've come across ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who've kind of thought, well, I wasn't sexually abused and my parents were quite nice and loving, so I've really not, you know, I've come out unscathed and I'm fine. But I would suggest we're not necessarily talking about massively obvious damaging life events we're talking about perhaps the kind of psychology that is used to control children so um a a colleague at work yeah a colleague at work put an article on my desk about a month ago and it it was called guilt causes depression in children and um, i thought he'd put it on there because he knew that i was like an ex-jehovah's witness frothing advocate and i read it and i was like oh my god this is like so pertinent he'd actually put it on my desk because he'd heard some of my teaching assistants and how they speak to my class and they were saying things like um come on eat eat up your lunch or it will make me really unhappy oh karen's unhappy because you're not doing this that or the other and he said to me you know we've we've got to stop that kind of well-meaning but malignant um way that we talk to these children we shouldn't be making them feel guilty to in into doing what we want them to do doing the work or eating the lunch or playing nicely or we shouldn't you know we shouldn't be adding that layer of guilt on but actually the article was much more relevant to how Jehovah's Witnesses control children, which is all through guilt. Jehovah will be sad. Jehovah will be unhappy. Jehovah will kill you at Armageddon. Exactly. And that is, you know, somebody, a TA telling a child at school, oh, Karen will be sad if you don't do your work. 
is a hundred leagues away from that kind of daily diet of guilt that Jehovah's Witness children are fed. Now, you might not realise that when you grow up and you just might leave and fade and think, oh, I'm fine, you know, nothing, nobody sexually abused me, crack on, I'm happy days. But actually, the entire psychology of, of the cult is geared towards a damaging childhood and a damaging adulthood as well for adults. It's it's damaging, but the reason it's so important in childhood is because that is when your brain is physically growing and developing and, and making connections. Exactly. And that was the and that was the reason for writing it because a lot of people don't have that level of sexual abuse, as you said, Louise, but they've always come from this environment of severe indoctrination so we've always got that emotional abuse or that emotional neglect happening the restriction of freedoms you know always been in that fight or flight mode due to the doomsday teachings you know the restrictions on freedom of identity the pressure to conform that's all a deprivation of liberty on the part of a parent or part of the organization in regards to the children so it comes under that emotional abuse and emotional neglect and the the Watchtower Society is always doing this, and it's to and whether it's to children or to adults, it's the same. They do it exactly the same, and it's to keep people in line. It's to keep congregates in line. It's if you don't do the right thing, you're going to die at Armageddon. That constant fear of that, it's very very damaging to a child. Like it's like water torture. It is. It's like water torture. Exactly. Um, in my next article, I wrote that you can't learn algebra when, when you're being chased by zombies. And I know that's yes. a really stupid, stupid analogy, but can you just imagine yeah, something? It was my favourite sentence, Sam. It was my favourite <laughs> sentence because I pictured myself as a child always being scared, always being made to feel guilty. You know, a lot of us get had night terrors as children. And yep. there is this fear and guilt. Even once you left, I'm sure you feel this way. But that yep. sentence that you wrote, which was, you can't do algebra if you're being chased by a zombie, is all of us can identify with that. That's how we feel. Mm-hmm. That's why it's water torture, because it's drip by drip by drip. It's not one yeah. car crash, like you mentioned before, you know, one big accident. No, it's every day that's the little things they add up. Yeah, and it's severe stress on a child. Like, severe stress has a massive impact on the development of children. And we are, and the Watchtower Society is keeping children in this heightened state of stress all the time. So when you've got that flight or fight mode engaged, I mean, it's great to have that. We have that as humans so we don't die. I mean, it's a good thing. But when that's engaged constantly in a child, they become overwhelmed. They their experience everything or they become numb because it's always at that heightened level and they can't differentiate whether I should be scared of this or whether I shouldn't be scared of this or and it and it dramatically impacts on their relationships their brain development their self-regulation their resilience their attachment to other people like I often read things especially like on xjw3 or even on the aussie page where where people are talking about as adults that we have they have this real problem connecting with other people and this is why we have that problem it's because of what they do to children it's the stress of being in a 
in an organization where you're constantly worried you're going to die tomorrow. One of the things I learned when I did my teacher training was that exact thing about um, fight and flight because I'm a maths teacher and everybody uh, loves maths. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite. It's, it's everybody's favorite subject, and um, the children feel intense fear in my maths lessons, and not because of me. <laughs> and we had, you know, we had sort of the the thing explained to us that physically the front part of your brain is the thinking part, and when you're under stress, when you can't do something, the blood literally goes to the back of your brain, to the fight or flight part, because that's what it thinks mm. it needs to do. And at that point, the child cannot think the question through. They can't, you know, you say, oh, I can't think. They can't, they're not lying. They can't think because the blood has gone to a different part of the brain that it thinks it needs triggering. So um, my little joke <laughs> used to be, if a kid was struggling, if I told the kid how to do a question, I'd then lean on the desk and put my face really close and go, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure, Sam, no pressure. <laughs> and make them laugh basically because obviously there was there's a lot of pressure in somebody leaning Mm. right over you going no pressure no pressure but it's true the children are in that constant state of fear as as witnesses because you know armageddon's just around the corner it's coming any minute and anyone that's not a witness is going to have their eyes pecked out and and you're going to have to bury the bodies under and might be too many bodies and missus leaning over you with an algebra question saying no pressure no pressure and it probably does have a massive detrimental impact on them, on children's education, I would suggest, and their emotional development as well. Yeah. Aren't we lucky, Louise, that um, Sam decided not to be a window cleaner? Because oh. how would she draw on that experience to write these articles? Of cleaning windows. <laughs> Funnily enough, yes. when I was cleaning, yes. I was cleaning. <laughs> Did you clean any windows, though, Sam, or were you just cleaning toilets? No, I was cleaning houses, so there was windows and toilets, Louise. <laughs> oh, aren't you the clever one? I just cleaned windows. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, the other thing that occurs to me about raising children in the Jehovah's Witness faith is that the children are always, they know that they always come second to the religion. So right from birth, there's a lack of unconditional love for children, I would say. That is not, probably not spoken. You know, the parent wouldn't say, oh, Sam, if it came to a choice between you and Jehovah, I'd pick Jehovah every time. It's not spoken and it's probably subconscious, but it's there. And I think that tends to breed maybe attachment disorder more among children in cults than the general population. Because you always know that you you always know that your needs, your desires will come second. For instance, like you said, if you if you don't want to go out on service, that's not a consideration. We go out on field service. That's what we do. So any any feelings you have of dread and fear are put second to the to the cult. Would you agree that it's possibly a problem with attachment disorder? I I definitely agree with that because um when a child's brain is under that level of stress, it doesn't form normal attachments. And that's been proven in studies that have been done overseas, like the Cohen and Walter one of 2003 or Olsky of 1995. They both showed that children under chronic stress, they don't have the secure relationships with their caregivers that 
And then they have a lack of trust, a lack of security, you know, a lack of trust in the world in general. So they're, they're disassociated from basically more emotional attachments. You know, and uh, we often see it when we talk to others, you know, they feel like they're, I mean, I know for me personally growing up, I felt like I was always the outsider looking in, you know. You never felt like you fit in. You never felt like you belonged really. And there was always this, there's always this distance and you you really don't Mm. know how to bridge it or gap it. And, you know, that social social skills are are dramatically missing. Can I just make the point as well that we don't have the monopoly on um, child neglect and emotional abuse as as Jehovah's Witnesses. I'd hate for people to think, oh, everybody who aren't witnesses have had a nice happy normal upbringing and we have a horrifically emotionally abusive one there are a million different ways to screw your children over and and people who aren't witnesses are also adept at doing the same things it's just that what we're saying is this is a systematic feature of cults so if you had been born into non-jehovah's witness parents you could well have had all this as well in fact you almost probably would i'd suggest based on the hundreds of thousands of children I've taught. But if you're born into Jehovah's Witnesses, you will have had these features, unless your parents were quite unique and managed to resist. So it's not that we have the monopoly on it. It's just that it's it's built into the belief system so that it's almost guaranteed that a child will, will suffer these um these forms of emotional deprivation and neglect. Again, again, I totally agree, Louise, but again, it comes back, back to that best practice that we were speaking about earlier. So a parent stuffing up their kid, that's an individual thing and each parent is is obviously responsible for the, the upbringing of the children that they bring into this world, whereas this is a systematic failure of an organisation. So it's mm. a different ball game. So when you are telling people that this is the way you need to raise your children and it's creating damage, it's not something that's just limited to individual families or households or, or whatever whatever family structure that a child lives in. It's something that is being practised. It's, it's a day-to-day thing and it's a culture within the organisation. Did, ha- did you ever get told when you were young... If you if you'd been an Israelite child and you'd done that, I would have been able to stone you to death. Yeah, I've got that. Well, yes, definitely got that one. Although I actually <laughs> oh, beat him. What are you saying that you'd like to stone me? No, no, I'm just saying that if you'd done that in the the days of Israel, you would have been stoned. Right. So what are you saying? You you want to stone me to death or you don't want to stone me to death? Make your mind up. Oh, what about the one of if you'd said that until she bears would have come out and <laughs> ripped your limbs off? <laughs> two she bears? Dad, when you say we've got two she bears in the garage? I can honestly say I never got the she bears one, but my dad would have more likely have to, to be wanting to be the she bear himself. <laughs> it's like a little yeah. bit of an insight onto my, my growing up. <laughs> We have drop bears. Drop bears are much more dangerous than she bears. Drop bears? In the Bible? Yeah, you've never heard of a drop bear? No. Oh, God. It's not in the Bible, Lara. I've never heard of it. <laughs> True. It's not in the Bible. True. It could be mythological, but then so could the Bible. I'm, I don't mean to be controversial, but I can Google you a picture of a drop bear. Did your parents threaten you with mythological creatures? <laughs> yes, of course. 
There was the multi-headed oh. monster in uh, Revelations. I'm sorry, I've been out too long. I can't remember the name. Oh yes, but that thing. Was... That thing terrified me. Babylon the Great. That oh no, that was the woman on the back, yeah. wasn't it? Babylon the Great. Well, she was. Yeah, she was on the back. Was it Babylon the Great? Was that the monster? What was? What was it called? I don't wild know. Beast. The, the wild beast. That was the United Nations. The wild beast. It? Yeah. It sounds really familiar. <laughs> hey, while I've been listening to Sam talk about her study and her writing, I've actually been looking at, um, I don't know if you've heard of FACT. FACT is Families Against Cult Teachings and Abuses. And yes, I was actually, yeah, okay, this is interesting because I was actually referencing all of your serious breaches that you were listing listing out before and I was trying to find where they fit in the there's a like a one page um, called nine symptoms of cult influence and many of what you're reading out I was looking at this one pager going yep tick 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 um, and there's a page written on the facts website that was written by Dr. Brad Sigarin and he researches resistance to persuasion. with what they're saying on the fact site. So it'd be worth. I might put that up as a link on this podcast so people can see that because because we have had the the bite model, the cult bite model as well. But it's good to have different references, and you can always share them with family and friends. It's really good too. Stephen Hassan's bite model. It's amazing. Yeah, and this one is particularly with regard to families. So the bite model is really simple and you can remember those things in your head. This one's a bit more, a bit longer, a bit more complex, but you can certainly reference them to a number of things that you said today. This blog where she's got these articles that we've been talking about today. Not only has Sam written these articles that she's had in a blog and she's got plans to do more, but she's actually drafted a book. And recently we heard from Helen Travers who wrote a book called Lower from Angels. And then we heard at Christmas time from Alexandra James, who now is releasing the Apostate Monthly. Uh, but you might see that this is a feature of sort of females taking the lead for a change. So now Sam is also writing a book, different topics in her book. But part of her book, and I'm lucky enough to have read a draft, read a draft of it, but part of her book talks about her past and she goes into much more detail than she's described today and discusses her father, for example, in a lot of detail, which I could really, it resonated with me. So, yeah, it was an interesting read. But in the second half of the book, she then goes on to talk about uh, many things that she's now talked about us today with and more, much, much more. And so I, I don't know what else you had to discuss today, but when you're ready, I want to introduce a song to take us out which encapsulate what I think of Sam. So I'm sorry, waiting for you to to do what other questions that you've got, Louise, but I've got a song for Sam when you're ready. Okay, brilliant. So I've got two more points that I'd like to make and then I'll and then you can introduce the um, closing song, Sister Kate but <laughs> <laughs> um, So one of the things that I wanted to mention was that I think People need to be able to forgive themselves because I know there are a lot of parents who have come out of the cult who then feel an immense amount of guilt for having raised their children in the cult. And 
it's a terrible burden to carry and I don't want this podcast to feel like a big stick meant to beat parents who have had children in the court because they were victims too the adults were victims too and I think the reason for the podcast is to help people understand their own psychological place and the fact that they might need to access help to heal damage because they might have damage that they don't realize but it's in no way meant to to beat on parents who who've raised children because they're carrying a, a double burden they're carrying their own burden of cult harm and then they are carrying the burden of guilt for what they feel they've done to their children and i really really want to stress a lot i know it's quite personal to me that i feel my mum yep. has carried a really terrible burden and i don't want her to feel that it's you know everyone was victims yep and i've forgotten the other point damn <laughs> wait i'll edit that that is a really good point i like it it's it is a really good point and and i think that we need to really understand that a lot of people that are in the organization today have been children brought up in the organization themselves so this yeah. is a cycle yeah. it is this cycle that's happening in the organization and it's not parents faults it's not the children's fault but the really good thing about children is the level of resilience they have children are probably the most resilient things on the planet so if when i think maya angelou says it really wonderfully the best you can do do you do the best you can until you know better and when you know better you do better so for parents moving forward i mean i'm one of those parents too i have two children um and i was a little bit careful not to indoctrinate them as much because obviously i had a husband that wasn't um in the organization so i was he sort of kept me very balanced in what i shoved down their throats but I did it too I mean we've all done it but it's amazing how quickly that resilience can come back and that damage that you that has been done can be undone you know with love and understanding and also as you said Louise you know get some counseling get some help and you know and you can move forward yeah and also for the parents who haven't been raised themselves as witnesses you know, often people converted to Jehovah's Witness because they'd had equally damaging childhoods, just not Jehovah's Witness parents, but, but horrifically abusive parents themselves who left them so vulnerable that they were vulnerable to to cults. So Yes, my mother is pacing point. Yeah, so parents really need to be able to forgive themselves and understand that their decisions were made off the back of how perhaps their childhoods were albeit not cult but probably equally if not more damaging um, and also people who know now that they've left a cult yeah uh, when you look at the theory of brain plasticity we know that brains can heal and grow and develop but you need to recognize what it is you need to heal I would say if you've got an illness it's not going to heal itself unless you get it it diagnosed and then you know what you're doing and then you can tackle it and you can deal with it and you can put structures in place to support the things that you can't fix so i'd say not just pretending that oh it's fine i'm fine i'm fine i've left it i don't want to talk about it but maybe recognize that there might be some harm or damage that's happened and then um, based on the theory of brain plasticity you can heal that 
but you need to know what it is you're healing. Oh, the other thing that I wanted to say, this is my final point, is on the legal side, so I see a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, sorry, um, going online and saying, oh, why why doesn't somebody take this to court, right? So you talked about the, the human rights of a child. Why doesn't somebody take this to court? Well, it's, that's a difficult one because, A, somebody could be the person that's saying it, <laughs> um, but you need money. You need to engage a lawyer, right? So it's okay just saying, why doesn't somebody um, take this to court? But who's going to spend the thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds it would take to engage a lawyer? You need to find out if there's a prima facie case. So I can't go to court on behalf of someone else. Okay, you have to prove under civil, sort of under the tort of negligence, you have to prove harm. And that has to be to you, to the complainant. So you need a prima facie and causality and a duty yeah. of care. So you need yes. to prove certain elements, which arguably are there, but yes. you can't just randomly say, um, oh, this is against the rights of a child, so there's a court case. It's, it's, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, I sort of get where people are coming from, but you really need a high level of proof to, to get a court case. But having said that, I do think that is the way that your articles are going, that this will this will add together to make cases stronger for people who yeah. do want to bring court cases, who can prove a duty of care between the elders and the congregants, who can prove causality from their what's happened to their to their direct harm and who can prove direct harm to themselves, then articles like yours will definitely strengthen those cases. But I think just randomly being able to put a case together based on the fact that it's wrong, isn't it? They shouldn't be doing that. It's not quite how the law works. I mean, it's I'm not, not disagreeing. It is wrong and it shouldn't be happening, but that's not how the law works. But the really amazing thing at the moment is we see so many people are saying stuff or writing stuff or doing stuff and it's really adding to a very rich tapestry that I feel is happening now so we're getting more and more information out there for people to access so that they can make better choices so they can they can do things differently or, or they can pursue whatever legal civil whatever means that they need to, they feel that they need to yeah rich tapestry that's a really good point and that is what you need you can't just come forward with one idea and and everybody back one idea and expect the world to change because you've identified but like you say if you've got a rich tapestry of resources and knowledge and understanding and people adding their voices to that yeah that that does become that does turn into a movement you think about the the um the black civil rights movement that was clearly wrong, but it took a rich tapestry of people moving forward to the point where Rosa Parks refuses to sit down on a bus and that rich tapestry behind her then suddenly coalesced into a movement that changed society. And I think that's where we're going with it. I think, I think Louise, that might be what you call this podcast, a rich tapestry of uh, documents to support people's complaints and I've listed those eight things that I'll put under the podcast so am I going to tell you the song that I've selected for Sam okay Sam I'm sure you know this song but in case you don't I'm going to send it to you straight afterwards because I want you to listen to the lyrics so this song was written by Sia Sia is an Australian songwriter an amazing artist but she doesn't sing it it's sung by Leah Michelle 
and the song is called Cannonball. So thank you for coming, Sam, and enjoy the song. Thanks, Lara. Thanks, Louise. Thank you very much, and thank you, everyone, to listen for listening to JW Podcast. Get out into the world again